Part two, chapter two of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part two, chapter two. Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog, let it be dearly understood, are the two tall poplar trees that keep ceaseless vigil by my gate. I state this fact baldly and unequivocally at the very outset in order to set at rest, once and forever, all controversies and disputations on that fascinating point. Historians will reach down the ponderous and dusty tomes that litter up their formidable shelves, and will tell me that Gog and Magog were two famous British giants, whose life-size statues, fourteen feet high, have stood for more than two hundred years at Guildhall in London. But that is all that the historians know about it. Theologians, and especially theologians of a certain school, will remind me that Gog and Magog are biblical characters. Are they not mentioned in the prophecy of Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation? And then, looking gravely over their spectacles, these learned-looking gentlemen will ask me if I am seriously of opinion that the inspired writers were referring to my pair of lofty poplars. I hasten to assure these nervous and unimaginative gentlemen that I propose to commit myself to no such heresy. Like Mrs. Gamp, I would not presume... For ages past, these cryptic titles have provided my excellent friends with ground for interminable speculation, and for the most ingenious exploits of interpretation. How could I have the heart to exclusively allocate to these stately sentinels that guard my gate the titles that have afforded the interpreters such endless pleasure? I would as soon attempt to snatch from a boy his only peg-top, or from a girl her only doll, as to embark upon so barbarous an atrocity." How could they ever again declare, with the faintest scrap of confidence, that Gog and Magog represented any particular pair of princes or potentates if I deliberately anticipate them by walking off with both labels and coolly attaching them to my two poplar trees? The thing is absurd upon the face of it, and so I repeat, for the purposes of this article, and for the purposes of this article only, Gog and Magog are the two tall poplar trees that keep ceaseless vigil by my gate. Trees are very lovable things. We all like Beaconsfield the better because he was so passionately devoted to the trees at Hewenden. He was so fond of them that he directed in his will that none of them should ever be cut down. So I am not ashamed of my tenderness for Gog and Magog. There they stand, down at the gate, the one on the one side and the other on the other. Huge giants they are, with a giant's strength and a giant's stature, but with more than a giant's grace. From whichever direction I come, they always seem to salute me with a welcome as soon as I come round the bend in the road." It is always pleasant when home has something about it that can be seen at a distance. The last half-mile on the homeward road is the half-mile in which the climax of weariness is reached. It is like the last straw that breaks the camel's back. But if there is a light at the window or some clear landmark that distinguishes the spot, the very sight of the familiar object lures the travel on, and in actual sight of home he forgets his fatigue. It is a very pleasant thing to have two glorious poplars at your gate. They always seem to be craning, straining, towering upward to catch the first glimpse of you, and they make home seem nearer as soon as you come within sight of them. Gog and Magog are such companionable things. They always have something to say to you. It is true that they talk of little but the weather, but then that is what most people talk about. I like to see them in August, when a certain olive sheen mantles their branches and tells you that the swallows will soon be there. I like to see them in October, when they are a towering column of verdure, every leaf as bright as though it has just been varnished. I even like to see them in April, when they strew the paths with a rustling litter of bronze and gold. They tell me that winter is coming, with its long evenings, its roaring fires, and its insistence on the superlative attractions of home. 
there never dawns a day on which gog and magog are not well worth looking at and well worth listening to but although i have been speaking of gog and magog as though they were as much alike as two peas the very reverse is the case no two things not even two peas are exactly alike when god makes a thing he breaks the mould the two peas do not resemble each other under a microscope macaulay in his essay on madame d'arblay declares that this extraordinary range of distinctions within very narrow limits is one of the most notable things in the universe no two faces are alike he says and yet very few faces deviate very widely from the common standard among the millions of human beings who inhabit london there is not one who could be taken by his acquaintance for another yet we may walk from paddington to mile end without seeing one person in whom any feature is so overchanged that we turn around to stare at it an infinite number of varieties lies between limits which are not very far asunder the specimens which pass those limits on either side form a very small minority so it is with trees when you first drive up an avenue of poplars you regard each tree as the exact duplicate of all the others there is certainly a general similarity just as in some households there is a striking family likeness but just as after spending a few days with that household you no longer mistake jack for charlie or jesse for jean and even laugh at yourself for having been so stupid so when you get to know the poplars better you no longer suppose that they are all alike you soon detect the marks of individuality among them and if one were felled and brought to you you could describe with perfect accuracy the two trees between which it stood this is particularly the case with gog and magog a casual visitor would remark as he approached the house that we had a pair of gigantic poplars at the front gate it does not occur to him to distinguish between them for aught he knows or for aught he cares gog might be magog or magog might be gog but to us the thing is absurd we know them so well that we should as soon think of mistaking one of the children for another as of mistaking gog for magog or magog for gog we salute the tall trees every morning when we rise we pass them with mystic greetings of our own a dozen times a day and before retiring at night we like to peep from the front windows and see their gigantic forms grandly silhouetted against the evening sky gog is gog and magog is magog and the idea of mistaking the one for the other seems ludicrous in the extreme the solar system is as full of mysteries as a conjurer's portmanteau but of all the mysteries that it contains the mystery of individuality is surely the most inscrutable of all what is the difference between gog and magog somebody wants to know and i am glad that somebody asked the question for it gives me the opportunity of pointing out that between gog and magog there is all the difference in the world there is a difference in girth there is a difference in height and there is a difference in fiber i have just run a tape around both trees magog gives a measurement of just six feet whilst gog puts those puny proportions to shame with a record of seven feet six inches i have not attempted to climb the trees but i can see at a glance that gog is at least eight feet taller than his brother nor do those measurements sum up the whole of gog's advantage for you cannot glance at the twins without seeing that gog is incalculably the sturdier in the trunk of magog there is a huge cavity into which a child could creep and be perfectly concealed but gog is as sound as a bell anyone who has seen two brothers grow up side by side the one sturdy masculine virile and full of health the other puny delicate fragile and threatened with disease knows how i feel whenever i pass between these two sentries at the gate i am full of admiration for the glorious strength of gog i am touched to tenderness by the comparative frailty of poor magog it is odd that two trees of the same age growing together under precisely identical conditions should have turned out so differently there must be a reason for it is there there is the fact is gog gets all the wind 
I have often watched the storm come sweeping down on the two tall trees, and it is grand to watch them. The huge things sway and bend like tossing plumes, and sometimes you almost fancy that they will break like reeds before the fury of the blast. Great branches are torn off, smaller boughs and piles of twigs are scattered all around like wounded soldiers on a hotly contested field, but the trees outlive the storm, and you love them all the better for it. But all the time you can see that it is Gog that is doing the fighting. The fearful onslaught breaks first upon him, and the force of the attack is broken by the time it reaches Magog. It may be that Gog is very fond of Magog, and, pitying his frailty, seeks to shelter him. It certainly looks like it. But if so, it is a mistaken kindness. It is just because Gog has had to bear the brunt of so many attacks that he has sent down his roots so deeply and has become so magnificently strong. It is because Magog has always been protected and sheltered that he is so feeble, and cut so sorry a figure beside his stouter brother. And now I find myself sitting at the feet of Gog and Magog, not only literally but metaphorically, and they begin to teach me things. It is not half a bad thing to be living in a world that has some fight in it. It is a good thing for a man to be buffeted and knocked about. I fancy that Gog and Magog could say some specially comforting things to parents. The tendency among us is to try to secure for our children the kind of life that Magog leads, hidden, sheltered, and protected. Yet nobody can take a second glance at poor Magog, his shorter stature, his smaller girth, his softer fibre, without entertaining the gravest doubts concerning the wisdom of so apparently considerate a choice. It is perfectly natural and altogether creditable to the fond hearts and earnest solicitude of doting parents that they should seek to rear their children like hothouse plants, protected from the nipping frosts and frigid blasts of a chilling world. But it can be overdone. A great meeting attended by 5,000 people was recently held in London to deal with the white slave question, and I was greatly struck by the fact that one of the most experienced and observant of the speakers, the Reverend J. Ernest Rattenbury of the West London Mission, declared with deep emotion and impressive emphasis that, quote, it is the girls who come from the sheltered homes who stand in the greatest peril, end quote. Perhaps I shall render the most practical service if I put the truth the other way. Instead of dwelling so much on Magog, look at Gog. I know fathers and mothers who are inclined to break their hearts because their boys and girls have had to go out from the shielding care of their homes into the rough and tumble of the world. Look at Gog! I say again, look at Gog! Was it not Alfred Russell Wallace who tried to help an emperor moth and only harmed it by his ill-considered ministry? He came upon the creature beating its wings and struggling wildly to force its passage through the narrow neck of its cocoon. He admired its fine proportions, eight inches from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other, and thought it a pity that so handsome a creature should be subjected to so severe an ordeal. He therefore took out his lancet and slit the cocoon. The moth came out at once, but its glorious colors never developed. The soaring wings never expanded. The indescribable hues and tints and shades that should have adorned them never appeared. The moth crept moodily about, drooped perceptibly, and presently died. The furious struggle with the cocoon was nature's wise way of developing the splendid wings and of sending vital fluids pulsing through the frame until every particle blushed with their beauty. The naturalist had saved the little creature from the struggle, but had unintentionally ruined and slain it in the process. It is the story of Gog and Magog over again. In my college days, I used to go down to a quaint little English village for the weekend in order to conduct services in the village chapel on Sunday. I was always entertained by a little old lady whose face haunts me still. It was so very human and so very wise and withal and so very beautiful. And the white ringlets on either side completed a perfect picture. 
she dwelt in a modest little cottage on top of the hill it was a queer tumble-down old place with crooked rafters and crazy lattice windows roses and honeysuckle clambered all over the porch straggled along the walls and even crept under the eaves into the cottage itself the thing that impressed me when i first went was the extraordinary number of old bessie's visitors on saturday nights they came one after another young men and sedate matrons old men and tripping maidens and each desired to see her alone she was very old she had known hunger and poverty the deeply furrowed brow told of long and bitter trouble she was a great sufferer too and daily wrestled with her pitiless disease but like the sturdier of the poplars by my gate she had gathered into herself the force of all the cruel winds that had beaten so savagely upon her and the result was that her own character had become so strong and so upright and so beautiful that she was recognized as the high priestess of that english countryside and every man and maiden who needed counsel or succor made a beaten path to her open door End of part two, chapter two.